Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP's board of view podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week we take a high topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? This week we're talking about aqueous humor and aqueous humor dynamics, aqueous humor production. This is material sourced from both the glaucoma text of the BCSC as well as partially from the fundamentals text. And gotcha. I figured we could start just by talking about where the aqueous is made at the ciliary processes. So I think this was one of the numbers that we kind of just have to post to memory. Ben, do you know about roughly how many ciliary processes there are per eye? Right. I've seen actually a few different numbers. Hmm. You know, I think one text says 70 and the other says 80. So I just remember right. between 70 to 80. Absolutely correct. That's a good way to spin it. <laughs> yeah. And if you've ever maybe like, I don't know, looked behind from either one of those cool uh, Apple Miyake view videos at how many ciliary processes there are, or maybe a little more commonly, if you've ever done an endocyclophotocoagulation where you're actually sticking a camera probe behind the iris and looking at the irises. Or actually, I guess you guys in retina might see the ciliary processes a lot if you just directed your endoscopes up a bit, right? Um, oh, that's yeah. if you're doing endoscopic Yeah, retinal surgery. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the Miyake view, just so people can, in case someone's never heard of it? Yeah, sorry, that's kind of esoteric. If you take like a cadaver eye... You basically stick a camera at the fundus looking up, and then you can watch people do like maneuvers or surgical practice in the anterior segment from like the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool at showing things like how strain is put on the zonules and, and things like that, things that you are normally obscured by the iris. Yeah. But anyway, that's just all to say that if you've ever seen a video of how many ciliary processes or of the ciliary processes, it kind of helps make this 70 to 80 number come more real for me. Because like, yeah, you see that they're discrete little finger-like projections and you probably couldn't stuff more than 80 of them in an eye or in a 360 degree uh, ring like they are. Right. But to talk a little bit about, you know, how they're made, what they're made of, and a lot of this is pretty testable fundamental material, it's a unique double layer of epithelium that it rests over a stromal core. And in that stroma, there's all these fenestrated capillaries. Those capillaries are ultimately little offshoots from the iris's major arterial circle. So that's probably all like the key words to know about the cellular anatomy of it, but we'll go a little bit deeper into this double epithelium, because this is something that really trips or tripped me up a lot on test questions, because there's lots of different ways they can ask about it. And maybe the first thing to know about it is there's two linings of epithelia. The terminology, one layer is called the outer pigmented layer of the epithelium, the other is called the inner non-pigmented layer. And even that gets confusing to me because it's actually, if you're thinking about it from, okay, you've, you're looking at the ciliary process, maybe from a camera or something, what you're actually looking at, the very most superficial thing to your view, is actually what's called the inner non-pigmented 
it's the side that's actually facing the aqueous, facing the posterior chamber. So just deep to that layer then, going a little towards the center of the ciliary process finger, that layer is actually called the outer pigmented layer. The way I try to remember it is it's, think of it in the same terminology that you describe the retina. So inner is like inner with respect to like the vitreous. So, yeah, yeah, fair enough. So if you kind of remember these, both of these things as like whether it's pigmented and one's inner or outer, as if it were analogous to the retina. So the inner part is non-pigmented, just like the retina is not pigmented. Mm-hmm. And the outer part is pigmented, just like the outer part of the quote retina, the RPE is pigmented. Then, you know, you can keep things. Straight. Yeah. And that's a great way to look at it. And it's also really helpful because one of the next things that people like to test about is as you kind of track with these layers, either further anterior or further posterior, you'll see that they kind of turn into retinal components or iris components. And a common question is, you know, like, well, which layer is contiguous with which layer in different places? So by that rationale, Ben, for what you'd call in the ciliary process, the inner non-pigmented epithelium, you're right. That actually is contiguous with the inner retina, which is neurosensory retina and obviously not pigmented. But whereas the ciliary process's outer pigmented layer is contiguous with the retina's RPE, which of course is a bit outer too, and that's easy to think of. Yeah. So those two contiguous ways make sense because at least the pigment layers are consistent, right? The outer pigmented layer of the ciliary processes becomes the very pigmented retinal pigment epithelium. But if you go in the other direction towards the iris, that's not the same, right, Ben? Yeah, that. so that's where things flip, and that's you need to remember that things flip. It's from the ciliary body to the iris. So the posterior part of the iris is always heavily pigmented and you know it doesn't matter what your eye color is and then the part that would be contiguous with the outer ciliary processes which would be the anterior iris if you think about it that has variable pigmentation you know if you have very dark eyes and they'd be dark and if you have light blue eyes and would have minimal to no pigmentation yeah. specifically the test is going to want you to know that the inner non-pigmented layer of the ciliary process is contiguous with the posterior pigmented layer of the iris. But that means what happens to the outer pigmented layer of the ciliary process, it, as it you know, migrates, as, that, as you track with it over to the iris, it turns into, the outer pigmented layer turns into the iris dilator muscle, or at mm. least is contiguous with it. So things kind of flip around pigment-wise and function-wise when you transition from the ciliary process to the iris. Yeah. Okay. So what do the inner non-pigmented cells do? Yeah, yeah. So back in the ciliary process, these inner non-pigmented cells, which really are like where the aqueous is directly facing the ciliary process, or that's the thing, that's the layer that's the interface between the two Actually, because they're that interface, they have to be pretty non-leaky because they are kind of where the buck stops as far as the blood aqueous barrier goes for this part of the eye. So all of these inner non-pigmented cells are locked tight to each one of their neighbors. So each non-pigmented cell is connected very tightly to each other by tight junctions. 
they're also, I guess, if you're if I'm talking about the geography of each individual cell, if they're on this, each, you know, horizontal lateral sides are connected to each other with tight junctions, where's the apical part of the cell? That's facing inside towards the next layer, the outer pigmented layer. And it's kind of this double apical feature where both layers have their apical surfaces pointing to each other because there's a lot of ionic transport going on between the layers also. They're both responsible for producing aqueous. There's three mechanisms by which aqueous is kind of made. It's either actively secreted by all those ionic transport proteins. It's either ultrafiltrated from pressure-dependent movement. So like if there's a lot of hydrostatic pressure in the ciliary processes capillaries and the pressure inside the eye is relatively low, then you'll actually get all that fluid kind of just getting pressurized, pressed into the chamber. Or they might just diffuse in, which is just, you know, ions and sol solutes in there and fluid flowing down their natural gradients. But most of it, honestly, is against a gradient. Most of this requires ATP, so a lot of these ion pumps are actually sodium-potassium pumps. And we won't really get into the weeds of exactly which pumps are pointing where and such, but just suffice to say that a lot of it depends on certain enzymes which actually are what's targeted by most of our ILP-lowering eye drops. Yeah, and it's important to remember that the mechanism that contributes the most to creating the aqueous is active secretion. You know, keeping your tire inflated is an active process. You, these other two, filtration and diffusion, are passive. So that's why, you know, it's important not only to know that active secretion is the most important, but also why manipulating it with your IOP-lowering drops is generally pretty effective at lowering intraocular pressure. Yeah. And we'll, we can talk, I will have an episode in the future about the glaucoma eye drops specifically, but just as a quick mention, since this is where you link knowledge, the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors work really well right here because there's a major enzyme, the carbonic anhydrase 2 enzyme that's helping all like carbon dioxide and bicarbonate become one or the other. And bicarbonate is itself an important thing that's in these ion pumps. If you kind of kill that one step in the traffic pattern, then the whole sort of factory line of, all right, this pump is going to bring in this ion, which is then going to be traded by the next pump for the next ion, that whole ladder of sequential like ion exchange fails, and then you don't get aqueous. So that's how carbonic anhydrase inhibitors work. The beta blockers work also because it turns out Beta-2 receptors are the most prevalent adrenergic receptors in this ciliary epithelium. And they also, you know, if left to their own devices, beta-adrenergic agonism will stimulate aqueous production too. So you block that with a beta blocker and not as much aqueous. On the same thread, alpha-2 agonist action also somehow reduces aqueous. Like, this is sort of in keeping with how I feel about alpha-2 receptors in opposition to all the other adrenergic receptors. They usually kind of calm things down. So your alpha-2 antagonists will actually reduce a aqueous as well. This, is, this next part is kind of pretty low yield, I think. It's never come up as far as I've seen it in a, anywhere but the fundamentals chapter. But uh, it's nice to kind of point out that the ciliary epithelium might also kind of act a little bit like a neuroendocrine gland. Because not only is it just passing stuff along that already exists, it actually 
seems like it expresses proteins all on its own, including complement proteins, glutathione, peroxidases, cathepsins, even brain natriuretic peptide. But I don't think you really need to worry about that. It's just have an appreciation that maybe it's not just an intermediary. Maybe it also actually produces some cool new stuff on its own, too. Yeah. There's like one... Well, yeah, there's, there's multiple reasons why that... No, nah, okay, there's one reason why that might be valuable to know, which is in cases where um, if you have ciliary body shutdown for whatever reason, you know, hypotony, which we can go back to mm. like, hypotony episode to think about. You know, remember that there are three compounds that help prevent cataract formation that are naturally found in the aqueous, and one of those is glutathione, and the other two are catalase and superoxide dismutase, which I, I believe are all made by the ciliary epithelium. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you, one of the side effects of having hypotony is eventually you will get a cataract much faster. And, you know, that might be due to multiple things. One is the less glucose and, you know, nutrient production by the aqueous and the lens is a, you know, nutrient hungry compound, but also the loss of these oxidative protective agents. Again, the three are glutathione, superoxide dismutase, and catalase may contribute somewhat to that cataract formation. So aqueous is important. That's why, you, I mean, as... I don't know if we'll go into it later, but, you know, that's why if you just, uh, you know, nuke all of your ciliary processes with a CTLC or something that like does not, it's not like the best thing for the eye in terms of visual rehabilitation, but, um, I feel like uh, such a you, villain You need now. aqueous, <laughs> right? But, you know, for comfort and lowering attractive pressure, it's great. So anyways, the next part, I think I, it may be a little bit out there. I did want to mention the Goldman equation, not to necessarily yeah. make you memorize what it is. I think you should memorize it. But okay. <laughs> the, I'm not, when we're talking about it, I'm not going to use the variable lettering that usually is used. I'll just say what each thing is. Yeah. And Goldman equation, what really is, is trying to estimate factors that play into making your IOP what it is. So you've got the literal equation on one side of the equation, just IOP. IOP equals, and then what other stuff gets cooked into the IOP? The numerator is rate of aqueous formation minus the rate of aqueous drainage through the uveoscleral pathway. So, Ben, do we know what the typical rate of aqueous formation is? All right, that is about 2 microliters a minute, roughly. Yeah, two to three. Um, so you, if you wanted to plug in a number, it would be even two and a half. Now, this is a common, you know, your senior will usually pimp the first year question because it relates to <laughs> the futility of doing an aqueous anterior chamber tap for high pressure sometimes. Right. If you've got, you know, this aqueous coming back two to three microliters every minute, well, What's the total volume of aqueous in the anterior chamber, more or less, Ben? It's like two or three hundred microliters, right? Right, yeah. So if you're yeah. making two and a half a minute in less than two hours, it's going to come, even if you completely shallow your anterior chamber with your aqueous tap, it's going to refill. Yeah. In a, less than two hours. So of all these numbers, that's one to actually know. Imagine in your numerator again, IOP equals what? Numerator. 2.5 microliters per minute minus rate of aqueous drainage through the uveoscleral pathway. I'm not going to give you a number for that because it's a, I don't actually find one. But now let's consider 
those two things are as the numerator. What's the denominator, Ben? The uh, outflow facility of the trabecular meshwork. And then all those things together, so you've got your numerator and your denominator, then plus what's the just sort of constant that you're adding all this to? The, and then you add the episcleral venous pressure to that. And that one we do know the number for. It's, that's why I call it almost like a constant. That's usually about 7 or 8 millimeters mercury, right. which is from kind of the, just the back pressure of all the stuff downstream of your flow. So like the pressure that's in the episcleral veins, in the vortex veins, in the collector channels, even in the cavernous sinus. That back pressure is generally about seven to eight. So right. the lowest you can make somebody's eye pressure without surgery is that lower limit. You can't get lower than that unless you intentionally cause or unintentionally cause a fistula in their eye. Right. And, you know, another way to, to use that number is if you find someone's pressure is under seven or eight, now that means there's something else going on. Like it's like you know, if they come in and they're not on any drop, like even if they're on drops, that there's something an extra pathway to help lower pressure, like a fistula, or um, maybe they have you know a ruptured globe, God forbid, or a retinal detachment can drop your pressure below that. So if they have pressures under seven or eight, don't just say like, oh, that's just where they live. No one lives at a pressure of six or five. Right. You kind of alluded this to this a bit. The composition of aqueous i guess yeah. yeah what's in the aqueous humor now just just so you don't have to memorize concentration values and things i think it's helpful just to say okay is the concentration of this element that we'll talk about greater or less than it is in compared to like say blood plasma and this is pretty testable also so you know some, some of the major common ones let's just say hydrogen and chloride are there more of it? Is there more hydrogen and chloride in the aqueous or in the plasma? There's more in the aqueous. Right. The other big one that's like hugely higher concentration in the aqueous than it is in plasma is ascorbic acid or ascorbate. So all this has made me wonder, like, if I were to taste eye fluid one day, kind of disgusting to think about, but would it be a little sour? What the heck? I guess. <laughs> right? You got all these like Don't do it, protons floating around. I, you know, it's a glaucoma specialist. You've already accessed the aqueous. <laughs> like, not, not even, this is not something to say, oh, it's for science. Like, like chill at that one. Oh, the numbers. It just seems like it's so obviously it would be sour. Right. Fine. I won't. Um, that also probably is against the terms of my... Uh, IRB anyway. I would, I would imagine. <laughs> um, there's also a lot more lactate in the aqueous. And there's a fun little factoid about why that might be. Uh, remember, everything in the eye, China basically gets its nutrition from the aqueous. And not be, there's no vasculature to say things like the lens. So a lot of all of this, you know, met metabolic processing requires and is really dependent on glycolysis so that's why there's a lot of lactate just floating around in the aqueous is just a byproduct of all of that glycolytic activity yeah it's an anaerobic process mm -hmm. oh one more thing actually um, about that ascorbic acid and this is maybe of i don't know interest to you even you as a retina doc ben i don't know this because everybody's got the whole like is a retina doc 
right? Sorry. <laughs> Everybody keeps wondering, like, is UV light really bad for you? Or is certain blue wavelength light bad for you? I swear I'm sick of answering that question. But uh, it turns out the ascorbic acid in the aqueous is responsible for blocking high, uh, UV light. And it only really works if there's high concentrations of ascorbic acid, which there is in aqueous. So your aqueous is also protecting you. There's also other stuff. What's on the side of there being less of it in the aqueous compared to blood plasma, Ben? Right. So there's less bicarb, glucose, and oxygen. And protein. So um, the protein, the reason that's low is maybe the most obvious. If it were a high amount of protein, then you wouldn't be able to see through the aqueous. It, It would look really cloudy, which is why, you know flare exists in when you're looking at cell and flare for maybe a uveitic process all that flare is just increased amounts of protein from basically a leaky blood aqueous barrier mm-hmm. the less oxygen thing i'll say this does have a lot of relevance for retina specialists also because there's this thought of well ever since i guess uh one very famous retinologist postulated that this might happen some people have found an increased incidence of glaucoma after vitrectomy. Hasn't been replicated all the time, but those who have seen it wonder maybe if it's because you're allowing there to be more oxygen than previously, and that as a reactive oxygen species might cause you actual damage. Yeah, if the mechanism isn't super obvious, the vitreous yeah. is thought to... Um, is thought to not allow ready diffusion of gases across it, including oxygen. So once you do the um, vitrectomy, then uh, it may be easier for the oxygen from the uh, retinal vasculature to diffuse across into the aqueous. Right. So we don't want oxygen. Otherwise, bad things might happen. So there is, at yeah, baseline, maybe. less oxygen in the aqueous. Yeah. I mean, in general... tautological, but... Yeah, it, it, it's probably not going to stop someone from doing a bit. Sorry. Yeah, of course, right. I, so, that, that's, that's maybe maybe we happen. should think about these things. Well, it probably won't stop nah, us from doing okay. this. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it is, it's an interesting um, fun fact. We have never been mad at retina for doing something to save somebody's retinal detachment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, you got to. Yeah, you, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. You know, this is also relevant. The, the question, thinking about vitrectomies is also relevant for the idea that there's less sugar in the uh, aqueous humor. So th- this is like a small surgical detail, but it hopefully it helps you kind of remember this. One thing I always have to think about when I sign someone up for a vitrectomy surgery is if they're a diabetic. Because if they're a diabetic, you know, I need to put dextrose into their infusion bag for my vitrectomy. Why is that? Because normally my vitrectomy bag has little to no glucose. You know, it's just BSS with maybe like epinephrine or something in it. But if someone has diabetes, they're going to have a higher level of sugar in their aqueous and their lens will equilibrate to that. So you need to match the glucose concentration in your infusion fluid. Otherwise, you're going to get like a rapid cataract during the vitrectomy. And then your attending uh, is delighted that they have lost their view. So, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, yeah. 
Um, I have never known about that little quirk of retina surgery before. What happens when we combine glaucoma and retina together? We learn wonderful things together. Like, I didn't oh think about God. the fact that they had motion aggravated <laughs> until just now. <laughs> well, that's neat because of the way it is. Oh, here, I think I've given this in the prior episode, but I'm just going to like say it again uh-huh. just to help you yeah, remember. Yeah. So in like kind of in summary, how I try to remember what the relative concentrations in the aqueous humor is compared to serum is you don't want your aqueous humor to be like milk because it's hard to see through milk. And so you can kind of remember, you know, milk has more bicarb, glucose and uh, protein in it. So, you know, those are the things that aqueous humor does not have. And then this is pretty arbitrary, but then I try to remember that the aqueous humor is kind of more like, not quite like orange juice, because orange juice is like, you know, stuffing up, but maybe like Sunny D, which doesn't have really protein in it, you know, it's got like ascorbic acid, it's like sour, so it's got, you know, uh, more hydrogen uh, chloride as well. So yeah, that's just like the, like the, the quick and dirty, the way that I try to remember which has which. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we talked about what keeps pressure up and what brings humor in, but how does this stuff get out? Hmm, snazzy. So aqueous outflow is divided into kind of two main pathways, the conventional pathway and then the uveoscleral pathway. We'll talk about the conventional pathway first because that's the through the trabecular meshwork, which you all have kind of, you know, probably more teed up to having a better understanding of already. But even at the trabecular meshwork... The TM itself can be divided into three layers. So from a standpoint of just standing free-floating in the anterior chamber, looking at the trabecular meshwork, so from your view on gonioscopy, let's just say, the first layer you're looking at is the uveal layer. And then going a little deeper to that is the corneoscleral layer. And then the kind of last layer is the juxtacanulicular layer. And that layer is even kind of made up of, it also comprises kind of, because what's behind the TM is Schlem's canal, where all the fluid finally tries to get to. So the juxtacanulicular layer of the TM is also kind of the inner wall of Schlem's canal. So the very last layer is also kind of part of the next thing too. Right. It's the part that's closest to the canal. Like that word always confused me when I was studying it, but you know, mm. the cannula just means it's a part next to the canal. Yeah. And it's probably the most important of the three layers because it's thought to be the site of most of the resistance in this pathway. And as you kind of go through these layers, you'll notice that or the trabecular meshwork is kind of like a sieve or a colander. It's got all these kind of networked beams of... Uh, cellular tissue, but fluid can kind of flow through the pores between those beams until you get to the juxtacanalicular layer where the kind of the pores aren't really there anymore, or there's much fewer of them. So aqueous doesn't just kind of travel around cells, it also can travel through cells, and those cells are thought to have some phagocytic activity also by as a means of doing that. And it's thought that in inflammatory states or even intentional inflammatory states, like you'd stimulate with a laser trabeculoplasty, that this phagocytic activity picks up a little bit more. And that explains fluid transport either around or through the cells. Hmm. There are not that many trabecular meshwork cells to start with, only about two to 300,000 per eye. 
It's not the same kind of thing where we kind of keep track of them like we keep track of corneal endothelial cells, but it is true that as you age, there's a lot of cellular remodeling happening, and you might not lose the cells so much, but you might end up getting a lot of like so-called cement kind of packed, extra cement packed between them, as your extracellular matrix also undergoes a lot of remodeling in glaucoma or in other disease states or even just in a normal aging eye. So that, all that sort of, you know, extra kind of padding between cells can also increase resistance to outflow. But finally, say you're aqueous humor, you've finally made it through the trabecular meshwork, and now you're finally in Schlem's canal. You still have further to go, but um, Ben, can you walk us through kind of the pathway of fluid from Schlem's canal distal onwards? Yeah, so it uh, goes through Schlem's canal and then to those episcleral veins, uh, which you were talking about gives that baseline pressure. And then that goes to the anterior, yeah, anterior ciliary and superior ophthalmic veins, and then that dumps into the cavernous sinus. Yeah. So that also gives you the pathway that if someone has an elevated pressure due to elevated venous pressure, like you know anything along that pathway, and you know cavernous sinus carotid fistula, for example, classically can give you high pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Schlem's canal, you know, for more academic interest, is a little interesting because it might actually be half lymph lymphatic tissue derived it seems like if you have like a person or a mouse and you knock out lymphatic gen, like progenitor genes i guess then their schlem's canal has trouble forming and that can be account for some of those really severe juvenile glaucomas where their you know their anterior segment dysgenesis just involves never having made schlem's canal mm. and this is kind of a new concept because we were always told before lymphatic vessels don't exist in the eye right right the listener may you know i've heard you say that the trabecular meshwork gets more basement membrane in, within it that can increase resistance and that it comes with age so then one might think like oh well then if you plot age versus iop why doesn't it just rise for everyone like if my pressure now is 14 when I'm 70, should my pressure at least be 20 or something on average? And the reason it doesn't always happen is even though, you know, I kind of just remember as more junk develops in the trabecular meshwork as time goes on, even though there's more junk, the rate of aqueous production also decreases on average with age, which is why yes. an older person can have like the same pressure they did when they, when they were young. This may be one reason why primary open angle glaucoma increases with age, the frequency increases with age, but... For your quote, normal eye, they both decrease. Thank you for that pointer, Ben. Yeah. You <laughs> saw between the lines of what I wasn't saying. Let's talk about uh, the uveous scleral path next, then. Okay. So, if that's the conventional pathway, Ben, you mind telling us a bit about the uveous scleral pathway? Yeah, this one's a little more uh, mystical to my mm. eyes. You know, the trabecular meshwork makes sense. It's like a um, weird colander, as you say. But the uveoscleral pathway is just where fluid can get through the root of the iris and kind of that face of the ciliary body and then just migrate into the suprachoroidal space. So, and then from the suprachoroidal space, it can you know go along the penetrating vessels and then uh, through the sclera and then leave the eye. So what factors can modulate this uveoscleral flow, Andrew? Well, things that might afford the aqueous more access to those kind of mystically thought of 
first points in the system, so the root of the iris, the ciliary body face, if you can make those kind of more prominent, then you'll increase the uveoscleral pathway. So cycloplegia is one way of doing that. However, it sort of maneuvers the lens iris interface. It just exposes more of it. Adrenergic agents can do it. Prostaglandin analogs can do it. And as far as increasing uveoscleral pathway, I guess, uh, flow. Maybe the most obvious thing is, you know, maybe if they have a fistula in that exact area, and what would be a fistula like that? Maybe a cyclodialysis cleft, which is why we worry about them so much when we're doing, say, things like mix procedures. It'll decrease with pilocarpine. So that makes sense. If cycloplegics increase it, then pilocarpine will decrease uviscleral flow. Now, some of this, the reason partly we're sort of talking about it like a mystical thing is because it's not super well defined exactly where the thing starts. We say that it starts at the root of the iris. Well, how does fluid even get to the root of the iris? You'd have to make the assumption that, well, maybe some fluid can actually flow through the iris to get to its own root. And you actually would have a lot of kind of, this is more esoteric and kind of higher echelons of Nerd debate. out, my friend. Nerd out. But there's a lot of publications out there talking about how the iris is a sponge, how it changes not just it, not just its porosity or its permeability from time to time, but also that it can actually change its volume and its shape depending on you know how much uh, it's got soaked up in there. I'm not going to get into that, but there's additional mystical elements in this. I remember, and I feel kind of embarrassed talking about an old project that I never brought to completion. But when I was a med student, I had a PI who was helping me work on tracer dye studies. So we actually put dye into an eye and then into a, into a mouse eye, so waited for a while, sacrificed the animal, and I'd slice up the eye, check it on histo. And so we could see the path of dye in the eye, kind of like a cool little fluorometric study and then see how it kind of got collected as it exited the eye. So I was actually literally tracing out the uveoscleral pathway. And in each of my time point slides, I could see like, okay, the dye's made it to the iris root. Now it's made it to the suprachoroidal space. But there's one thing that got my PI really excited. And he was saying like, look, dye has made it back into the ciliary process. So what you've shown here, Andrew, is that you might be providing more evidence that the ciliary process doesn't just spit out fluid or, you know, churn out fluid, but it actually recollects and brings in fluid again, too, to cycle and process and maybe spit back out later. Now, at the time, this was totally lost on me, and I think we were all impressed that, that's as far, that I even got that far in the project. But this sort of kind of ill-defined access points for the uveoscleral pathway. Does it go through the iris root? If it does, how does it get there? Or does it even, does it go into the ciliary process? Because that's not completely understood or agreed upon. We don't know. And in fact, the uveoscleral pathway is so mysterious that you can't actually measure it. The only way you can find out like, okay, how much flow is going through this pathway, going back to the Goldman equation, is by deriving it from the Goldman equation. So, so you, to you need to do, else. correct, you need to measure all the other things. Now, what are those elements again? 
It's the rate of aqueous formation, which we'll just assume is pretty constant, two and a half microliters per minute. There's the episcleral venous pressure. That's pretty constant also. That's eight. But then you still have two other variables, one being flow through the uveoscleral pathway, which is what you're trying to find. But the other variable, Ben, is the outflow facility through the trabecular meshwork. And this is something that is probably what I was going to end the segment talking about. What is outflow facility of the trabecular meshwork? Isn't it the same thing as the flow rate through the trabecular meshwork? It's not. It's a bit different. It's the inverse, mathematically, of resistance. And this is something that you do need to measure if you want to find out what the, the other unknown variable of uveoscleral flow is. How would you measure outflow facility? Can you measure it with a tonneau pen? No. No. A tonneau pen, golden applinator, those are all tonometers. So that's tonometry. Tonometry is the measurement of eye pressure. Tonography, though, tonographs, can measure outflow facility. And the way they do it is, and some things like Schiotz tonometers or pneumatonometers also have tonographic functions, so you can measure them that way with those devices. An outflow facility is measured in the units are microliters per minute per millimeter mercury. So there's a component of time here. And the reason that Schiotz tonometry, which is literally the barbaric way we all were taught about of like we've hardly ever seen, you literally put weights on the eye and kind of do it until things even out. Those are helpful because you can just put weights on an eye and then kind of wait for a bit and then recheck the measurements again a few minutes later and you'll notice they're different. You're kind of, I don't think this is exactly what's happening, but it's a nice conceptual way to look at it. As you literally squeeze fluid out through the trabecular meshwork by this weighted addition you're using with your instrument, you can measure how much was there to begin with, how much is there after a certain time, and the rate of change is the outflow facility, if that makes right. sense. Totally. It's never done clinically because these measurements are way too error-prone to be reliable for clinical purposes. It's only just a research tool. So if you're even using tonography to figure out your uveoscleral outflow rate, then you're already kind of doing like a science fair project. Right, right. So it's kind of like if you had a tire and you're trying to deflate the tire, if you were to sit on the tire and then try to reduce its pressure, then the then the rate at which the pressure will go down will tell you how big the hole is in the tire that you're trying to deflate. <laughs> There's a bigger, ti- bigger hole in the tire than it would deflate faster. That's how tonography works. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. Nice. And then just so folks know too, because it, it can get asked about, the technique to measure aqueous humor production is fluorophotometry. So it's where you give someone intravenous fluorescein and then measure the rate I wish it you can see it in the anterior chamber because it comes with the aqueous humor. But uh, we won't go much more into that. But that's the answer to the question if you get a question about how to measure the rate of aqueous humor production. Yeah. You either just take it on faith that it's about two and a half microliters per minute, which it usually is, or you hook them up to some contraption in the lab yeah. to do fluorophotometry. Hey, hey, Andrew. Yeah. Hey, Andrew. Yes. You know what they say about eye jokes? Oh no. 
They're just getting more cornea. And that's... That's aqueous humor. I feel violated. <laughs> <laughs> if, <laughs> if you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes 4 ears of the number four. We've also got a website, www.eyes4ears.com with the number four. And if you like support the podcast uh, and get more excellent eye-related jokes, then you can mm-hmm. give us a rating review on iTunes or where we find our podcast. Otherwise, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. See ya. Bye.